Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Before we start this podcast, let me just remind you that the Economic Rockstar Podcast is available on many platforms. iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and of course, on the website, economicrockstar.com. Hello Economic Rockstars, thank you for joining me on this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast, connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Today we have a great giveaway for one of our lucky listeners. We have an amazing giveaway in which you can win a one year's online course at the Mises Institute. There will be 50 courses with each containing about 5 hours of audio and video content, giving you over 250 hours of lecture time, where you can complete one year online course at the Mises Institute in the comfort of your own home. These are delivered by the great lecturers at the Mises Institute, in which they deliver content on micro and macroeconomics, philosophy, economics of the Fed, and 19th and 20th century history. This is a fantastic opportunity for you to get to understand a little more deeper the Austrian economic school of thinking. Even if you are being trained or have been trained as an economist in a different school of thought, at least this will give you a different perspective on how you could view economics. In episode 11 of the Economic Rockstar podcast, Professor Steve Keane of the Kingston University in London recommended that we should all adopt a pluralist approach to economic thinking, meaning we should embrace all the schools of thought that's out there, and it's only by doing that that we can have a greater understanding of the theories of economics and what better way for you to make up your own mind in terms of what school of thought you belong to. This is a truly amazing giveaway. So be in with a chance, visit www.economicrockstar.com forward slash Mises, M-I-S-E-S. And to double your chances of winning this online course, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash win. On completion of many of the courses, you will be given certificates of completeness from the Mises Institute in Alabama. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you are listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. This episode is part two of an interview with Dr. Mark Thornton of the Mises Institute. Check out part one in episode 18, where we discuss Irish economist Richard Cantillon, as well as Ludwig von Mises and Irving Fischer. In this episode, Mark tells us how we can identify when the next world economic crisis is looming by using a simple observation of skyscrapers, and how we used it to warn of the 2007-2008 economic crisis. Also on this show, Mark argues for the decriminalization of marijuana in the United States, claiming the medicinal, industrial and commercialization benefits, as well as explaining how a prohibition on drugs like alcohol in the early 1930s is worse for the social economy. So enjoy the show and let me know what you think. The skyscraper curse is a great little tool to see what's going on in terms of the most significant bubbles and busts over the last 100 years. When I was a kid, only 12% of Americans wanted to see recreational marijuana use legalized for adults. Today in the United States, it's almost 60% favor legal recreational use of marijuana. I want to stick with the team of the late 1920s, but before I go on to that, I just want to ask a few things about you personally, if you don't mind. Sure. You mentioned a lot of economists there, and surely your favorite economist. I'm assuming it's Richard Cantillon based on the lot of work that you're actually doing right now. But do you have a favorite economist? Well, certainly I do. 
I would say because of my research interest that it would be Richard Cantillon. But in terms of influence, in terms of how I got to where I was and how I ever stumbled across this largely unknown Irish economist, I would certainly have to credit Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard as being highly influential in my economic thinking about a broad array of different things about the economy and how the world works. What brought you to America, or are you second or third generation Irish in America? Yeah, I was born in America. My relatives emigrated from Ireland after the famine in the 18, after the 1880s. And so I'm, a, I guess, a fourth-generation Irish-American and originally grew up in upstate New York in a town called Geneva, New York. And it was only because of Auburn University, of going to graduate school at Auburn University, have I been living in Auburn, Alabama for the last 32 years. Your whole perspective on economics really shines through in the work that you do on the Von Mises Institute website. You have a lot of video, a lot of content. It's absolutely amazing. And I just advise or recommend people listening to this podcast. As soon as you listen to it, just check the Mises Institute at Mises.org and check out Mark Thornton's work. It's absolutely amazing and it's all free. It's absolutely amazing. And then you can sign up to some of his courses that are actually online on Bubbles and Busts. But do you have an affirmation or mantra that you'd like to share with us? And would they be stemming from your Irish heritage? I probably should have one specifically Irish. The closest I have to something like that is actually Ludwig von Mises's personal lifelong motto, which he took from Virgil and translated in from Latin into English. It's, do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. And I think that that's something that's really helped me in my career and in my life because there is evil in the world, and it is scary, and the notion of standing up to it and going public, appearing in public, appearing on alternative media such as your podcast, writing the things I do about the federal government, world government authorities, central banks, the mainstream media, that can be very a scary proposition in the sense that you could be adversely affected by that. So by going by this motto of do not give in to evil, it means that it frees you up to take the stand that you actually believe in rather than watering it down or covering it up. So it's been very helpful to me. It's braced me for the events that have transpired over the last many years in the current economic crisis that we're going through and some of the things we may have to suffer through in the future or even the near future. So it's been very helpful, and it's something that everybody can share. Those people who feel they need to conform with the crowds or the masses, removing those shackles really liberates, no matter what perspective you're actually taking. But what you're just describing there, your philosophy, it seems to resonate with Ron Paul. I, I, don't, I don't mean to go down the political route, but... Would you have any inclination in terms of who you might like to be the next U.S. president? Well, it would be great if Ron Paul could be the next president of the U.S. Or even, I always thought that it would have been a tremendous thing if he had been made Speaker of the House. Uh, and he still can be. You don't actually have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be the Speaker. But he could be there to represent true conservatives, libertarians, Tea Partiers, left-wing progressives, anti-war Democrats, which I think 
in some sense could be a significant portion of the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives, if it's properly run, could be the most important branch of government in the United States. It was always meant to be the most important branch of government in the United States. And and I have been involved in politics during my career as a way to reach out to the general public and giving me a platform to discuss alternative economic policy. But I've kind of withdrawn myself from politics to concentrate on education primarily of the general public, because I think the Austrian perspective says that the world works according to the ideology of the masses. It's the ideology of the masses that have allowed the political parties to be captured by the interest groups and the large corporations. And we have to change that mindset of the masses before we're ever going to get political reform of the type that Austrians would like to see. And so I've been working on what I consider the most effective means to achieve the ends of Austrian economists who are trying to make the world a more prosperous and freer, more stable and more enjoyable society. And so, you know, this is something that David Hume and Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, you know, they've not just studied Austrian economics, but they've studied how can we make it operational. And they all agree that if we don't change the minds of the masses and the ideology that they support, that we're never going to have a chance to have a stable policy reform in Washington or in Brussels or anywhere else. I mentioned earlier that I'd like to go back to the late 1920s, 1929, the Great Depression. The Empire State Building was built around that time period, known as a skyscraper, and you have an idea that there's a skyscraper curse or skyscraper index that we should follow. You wrote a fantastic article called Housing Too Good to be True on June 4, 2004, predicting the housing crash. Could you tell me what insights you actually came up with at that point in time to come up with that indication? Um, Did the skyscraper curse or skyscraper index influence your thinking too? Yeah, it's very interesting. I came across this notion of the skyscraper curse from a real estate analyst in Asia who put together a report where he draws the eerie correlation between record-setting skyscrapers and world economic crisis. And he didn't have any reason or rationale for why the two are related, but I could see immediately the implications of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. You know, I was aware of this during the housing bubble, and uh, I wrote you know, as you suggest, about the housing bubble in 2004, 2005, 2006. And I also published an article in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics on skyscrapers and business cycles. That's another free thing about our Mises.org website is you can get all of this stuff, books, articles, journals, newsletters, and so forth, video, audio. Basically, in the article, I explain the theoretical connections between record-setting skyscrapers and economic crises and, you know, go through the history of all that and, and show why the two are related, why it takes artificially low interest rates by the central bank, why this causes prosperity, speculation, exuberance, and so forth, which leads to the building of record-setting skyscrapers, which ultimately fail and which are usually completed or opened around the time of the ensuing economic crisis. So in 2006, the Burj Dubai Tower in the Middle East set the record skyscraper height. And so we started looking at the marketplace, the the home builder stocks and so forth, 
And we could clearly see all this stuff breaking down, despite the fact that everybody was still saying that, you know, housing, you can never lose money, real estate prices never go down. All of this mantra of pro-housing was still going down. I was being attacked just about everywhere I spoke about this subject. But sure enough, the housing bust was soon evident, and its financial effects started moving through markets such as the mortgage lenders and then the banks, the construction companies. This started having adverse effects on credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities and all those new funny financial instruments that the Fed was telling us at the same time were great new innovations, that there's nothing wrong with them, the Fed is going to regulate them, everything's going to be great. Ben Bernanke was saying that he had investigated the mortgage lenders and mortgage lending practices and that uh, such practices were now better than they had ever been in the past. And so the skyscraper curse came exactly on time. That tower in Dubai didn't actually open for business until January of 2010, at which point that project was bankrupt and the whole world was in a financial crisis at that time. So the skyscraper curse is a great little tool to see what's going on in terms of the most significant bubbles and busts over the last 100 years. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. And again, I'm going to stick with 1920s because it has some similarities with what's going on today. Just like the way we saw the Empire State Building and the largest skyscraper in Dubai signaling the end of the bubble, really, the bursting of the bubble. But the 1920s also in the United States had the prohibition where the manufacture, transportation, importing, exporting and the sale of alcoholic beverages were restricted or made illegal. Now, gangs like the Mafia were established around that time period. And they profited from this prohibition. And there was a lot of murders and etc. going on. And when the prohibition ended, I'm sure there's been a reduction in terms of gang warfare uh, at that point in time. We have a similar scenario today regarding drugs. And you wrote a book called The Economics of Prohibition. Do you have any recommendations what government could do in order to alleviate the criminality of drugs and the consequences of that criminality in terms of murders and funding other things through uh, counterfeiting of money through drugs? Oh, yes. I mean, and good things are happening with respect to that. In the 1920s, when alcohol was illegal, of course, there was an all-time high level of crime in the United States. The murder rate essentially doubled in the United States. And then in 1933, when the murder rate had been close to 10 murders per 100,000 population, we legalized alcohol, and the murder rate very quickly fell back to the normal level of about five murders per 100,000 population, despite the fact that the economy was awful and people were desperate for money and jobs and food in all forms of crime. Crime, basically, most forms of crime dramatically improved at that point in the United States, despite the fact that we were in the Great Depression. So crime, corruption, 
bribery, all of those things are greatly enhanced by prohibition. There was virtually no organized crime in the U.S. outside of places like New Orleans and New York City prior to alcohol prohibition, but it was everywhere after prohibition was put in place and it was greatly hurt by repealing prohibition. Today, we see the same thing in the United States and most prominently in Central America and in the northern part of South America, where many of the drugs are grown, manufactured, and it's where their transportation into the U.S. and Europe begins. So as we've tightened the noose around that drug trafficking so that drug traffickers have to use the Central American land bridge to bring drugs into the U.S. through Mexico, into Texas, southern California, etc., we've seen the murder rate in those countries escalate to almost near impossible levels. And for civil society in places like Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, in many parts of those countries, civil society is broken down completely, and the drug cartels and the drug gangs dominate those areas. And they either bribe the politicians, police, and military, or they threaten them. And so they basically are in control, and the murder rate is unbelievably high in those countries. So much so that people are sending, and in some cases the kids are just doing it on their own, but young children are emigrating from those countries in Central America through Mexico, a very dangerous ordeal, to try to get into the United States. It's that bad. And I think if politicians wake up and realize that if we legalized drugs and we commercialized them, for example, I would like to see all of those drugs legal, but there's a lot of things you can do that are intermediary to that that would have a tremendous effect in terms of reducing crime, organized crime, corruption and bribery. You know, Portugal decriminalized drug possession of, for all drugs, and they've experienced improvements in all social indicators. So there's less drug abuse, there's less needle-borne diseases, there's less addiction, there's less drug consumption, there's less crime. And so they've gone part way towards legalization, and they've experienced across-the-board improvements and Fortunately, and this is where the ideology aspect comes through, I think, Americans are waking up to the fact that it is absolutely insane to make marijuana illegal, to make it a class one drug along with heroin, when in fact it doesn't kill anybody, it doesn't make people angry and violent, it doesn't drive people insane, it actually calms people down. It's very useful in medicine. It's very useful in industry and textiles. It can be used in a wide variety of medical uses as well as commercial uses. Americans are waking up to that, and they're legalizing for medical purposes marijuana. And it's now recreational use is legal in four American states and the District of Columbia where Washington is. And so this movement is spreading and the reason it's spreading is because people's ideology towards marijuana and prohibition and the war on drugs has changed. And when I was a kid, only 12% of Americans wanted to see recreational marijuana use legalized for adults. Today in the United States, it's almost 60% favor legal recreational use of marijuana not forcing people to use it, obviously, but just allowing people to make their own choices. Close to 80% of Americans support legal medical marijuana in the U.S. 
And so there's been an ideological revolution against the war on drugs, and it's actually changing policy, despite the fact that the federal government still supports the war on drugs, and despite the fact that international government also supports the war on drugs. So people are, in essence, nullifying the war on drugs through their state governments, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And I I did have some confidence that this would happen, and now people are predicting that the tide of events is going to continue to happen very quickly, not just here in the U.S., but in other countries around the world. Just ask you a couple of the resources or recommended books or maybe even a takeaway that you might suggest to some of our listeners and how they might approach economics. Yeah, well, I think that the Austrian economic view is an alternative to the mainstream view of economics, which dominates U.S. policymaking and really world policymaking. So if if listeners are interested in your podcast, they're going to be interested in Austrian economics as an alternative to the mainstream and M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G is where Austrians from around the world come to get their daily input, the blog, events that the Institute puts on, a tremendous media section of audio and video lectures, a library where all of the libertarian journals through history are maintained and where the current journals are updated on a regular basis And so it's just a tremendous resource, and you can sign up to be alerted to our new daily articles, our events, our blog posts, and so on. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Of course, it's open 24-7, 365. It's all free. Even in our bookstore, our hardbound books are discounted heavily, and most of our books that we sell, you can find free electronic copies of on Mises.org. So just like in a regular bookstore, you can go in there and pick it up electronically, look at the whole thing, print it out, read it, whatever you want to do. And if you like it, like me and so many other people's, once we realize what's in a book, we know if we want to have that hard copy of it or not. And so it's just a tremendous resource. And then you'll also find out about everything the Mises Institute does. Right now, there's over 20 other Mises Institutes around the globe, several of them, such as in Canada, in Brazil, in the Czech Republic, and in Poland, and in Germany. They're doing very well. They're growing. They replicate what we do here in Auburn, Alabama, for their local population and their local languages So as bad as things are getting right now, as big as government is getting, once you go to Mises.org, you'll realize that we are winning the battle for the hearts and minds of people around the world, particularly younger people who are disgusted with the status quo of the mainstream and who want to see real alternatives to those mainstream views and the mainstream crony capitalist power base. I would love to see some people from Ireland yeah. come over here and get a direct dose of, of Austrian economics at the Mises Institute. Make sure that they all just check out our events page uh, as well so they know what's coming up. Yeah, Maybe we, maybe we can do an, uh, an event sometime in Ireland. That, that would be nice. That would be excellent. Mark, thank you so much for sharing with us your advice and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I learned a lot from you today. Share with our listeners where they can find you. Well, you can find me on the Mises Economic blog at Mises.org. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Mark Thornton. That's D-R-M-A-R-K-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. I'm also on the Mises 
Facebook page, and I'm also posting on the LinkedIn page for friends of Austrian economics and the Mises Institute. So I'm out there for sure. You can find all the links to Mark on economicrockstar.com forward slash Mark Thornton. Mark, you are an economic rock star. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate that. I'd love to know about you, the listener. Why not reach out to me on Facebook, like the Facebook page, Economic Rockstar, or follow me on Twitter at econom underscore rockstar, or head straight over to economicrockstar.com and sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. That way I can only serve you better by understanding who you are, what you'd love, and who you would love to be on the Economic Rockstar podcast in the future. I know we're running out of time now. I was going to ask you about the future of education. I can leave it if you wish. Well, I'd love to to come back some other time and do another show. You've got some great questions. I love them.